last week we did a flyover of the Sermon on the Mount to get a feel for the main points Jesus makes when he preaches. This week, we'll go back and look under the covers of each of these main themes. Last week, we discovered that Jesus' overall main point is that we are the light of the world. We're like the eye of the body or the salt in the stew. And later, just before he dies, Jesus tells his followers, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't be walking in darkness. You will have the light of life. And that reminds me of a prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah 9. It says, the people walking in a great darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the shadow of death. And it also reminds me of what Simeon prophesied when he saw Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus into the temple. Simeon had been hanging on to life by a thread, just waiting to lay his own eyes on the Messiah. And when he saw Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus into the temple, he praised God saying, you, God, have prepared your salvation a revealing light for the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. So here we have the witness of ancient Hebrew prophecy, a current prophecy at the time of Jesus' birth and Jesus' own words. So we've got three witnesses here. Jesus' own mission, what he was sent for, is to bring the light of life to people living in the shadow of death. This is the big point, the point that has been from the Hebrew scriptures and is now um, in Jesus' own words. Um, and in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes that this is our mission as well. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but salt is no good if it loses its saltiness. It's good for nothing but being thrown out and trampled on by folks. You are the light of the world, so shine. Be like a brightly lit town on a hill that cannot be hidden. Be like a lamp that lights the whole house. This, to me, says we somehow need to pour out the light of God's good news and blessing and favor in a way that people understand it and feel it and respond to it. But exactly how do we do that? Do we go out and preach, write books, set up churches? Maybe someone asks Jesus that question because he says you do it by doing works that are kala. According to Strong's Concordance, this is a Greek word meaning things that are good, noble, honorable, worthy, beautiful, excellent, useful, suitable, commendable, admirable. You get the idea, right? It's kind of a big group that conveys a, a strong message of kind of what kala sorts of works are. Notice how wholesome this list is. These are the works we are to do. Jesus doesn't say anything about great works or important works. He talks only about the type of work we do. All of these words fit beautifully with being a person in a state of humility, a person who lets God be God. We reflect God. We live in God's space. It's how we live that matters. Jesus is not talking about convincing people of a certain theology. Jesus says we should simply be exactly what we are. Light and hope and goodness in a world of death. We are to share in this mission. Then a little later, Jesus explains why what we're doing matters. He compares the world to a body and calls us the eyes. He says, the eyes like the body. If the eyes are sound and healthy, then the whole body will be full of life. 
But if your eyes are evil, the whole body will follow. And if what should be light is actually darkness, what a terrible darkness that will be. So just right off the bat, I want to say this is not talking about physical eyes being good and blindness being evil. None of that. We're not doing ableism here. Jesus is speaking metaphorically. But what he's saying is that who we are and whether we bring goodness or evil into the world makes a vital difference to the whole world. And in the end, Jesus says, if you hear my words and actually do them, you will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock, able to withstand any storm. But if you hear my words and ignore them, you will be like someone who built their house on sand, a house that falls with a great crash when the storms come. Our mission matters. Being light in a world of death is what Jesus has come to do. And this is how he tells us to follow him. He's very, very clear about this. So now that we've you know, got that in mind and we need to keep that in mind, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will make a lot more sense. Jesus dives into a lot more detail about exactly what it looks like to live out his words, to hear his words and do them. As we saw last week, there are three parts to it. The internal work we ourselves do, that's the green stuff. You can see that's the bulk of Jesus' teaching, which makes sense. This is Discipleship 101 for his brand new disciples. The part God takes care of, that's the pink stuff. And how we treat others, that's the blue-purple stuff. We'll look at each of these three parts separately. The specific scripture references are on each sticky note if you're following along in your Bible. So let's begin with what Jesus says about the internal work we need to do as disciples. He starts by making it clear that everything he's about to say is entirely consistent with the law and the prophets. He's not changing any of that. In fact, he says anyone who dissolves, releases, or unties even the smallest commandment and teaches others to do so will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. They'll still be part of the kingdom, but they will have missed the point entirely. But wait a minute. A lot of those commandments in the law are about like animal sacrifices and stuff like wearing clothing woven of two different fibers or eating bacon. Well, those commands seem to be tied to a particular people in a particular culture facing particular problems. I think few people today would believe we are breaking God's laws if we don't do daily animal sacrifices. Jesus has to be talking about the law in a broader, deeper sense, in some way that would transcend culture and time. I think he's talking about the deeper, broader, more foundational commands found throughout the law, commands about how we are to relate to each other and to God. I also think it is significant that Jesus doesn't specifically say the law of Moses here. He says this is about fulfilling all of the law and the prophets. That's a blanket statement covering all of the promises of God and all of the entreaties of God to his wayward people. And if you remember, the law was about righteousness, a concept meaning fulfilling relationships well and acting justly. And what God was most concerned about in the prophets was justice and mercy and hospitality and humility. Those were the huge recurring themes running through every story, every law, and the words of every prophet. Jesus says, unless our righteousness, and this word literally means justice in Greek, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this makes sense. For one thing, the bar of being more just 
than the scribes and Pharisees is a pretty low bar. But it also makes sense that if we cannot act justly towards each other, then we will have completely missed the point. I don't think Jesus is saying that someone is going to bar the door. I think he's saying we will miss the kingdom of heaven. It will be right there in front of us, all around us, and we won't be able to find our way into it because we are absorbed in taking advantage of other people and we are determined to build up our own earthly power and comfort. That's how we miss the kingdom. Notice that Jesus is not talking about heaven and hell here. This whole sermon is about how to live in the here and now. It's about how to enter into the kingdom now. God's kingdom is here. We are part of it. And its inhabitants and workers are characterized by justice. God's consistent reiterated commands throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, including the prophets, were that we are to be merciful and compassionate, just and generous, and to be humble and not arrogant, to give all power and glory over to God and not gather it to ourselves. This then must be what Jesus is talking about here when he says we must fulfill the, quote, law and the prophets. This is what we must do and what we must teach others to do. This is how we enter the kingdom of heaven now. Next, Jesus says we must deal with our own junk, especially our anger and our lust. He starts out by saying, you already know the command, do not murder. Anyone who commits murder is subject to judgment. Now, Jesus isn't talking about judgment by God here. He's talking to the people about regular trial and judgment for murder in a human court by a human judge. Jesus takes this common knowledge and takes it a step further. He says, the same goes for anyone who is angry with a brother or sister or calls them a derogatory name. They're liable to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish court. The Sanhedrin in Jewish eyes would be a step above the regular secular court. So notice how this teaching is rooted in human courts and human justice. Apparently, during this time, you could get hauled in front of the Sanhedrin if you called someone derogatory names. But now Jesus takes what everybody knows to be the case. He takes it one step further. This time, he addresses how such behavior affects our usefulness in his mission. This, in all This is all in the context of us remaining useful in our mission of being the salt of the earth and light of the world. He's illustrating his main point here. Jesus says, if you call someone you fool, you will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. So this is like the one step forward that Jesus is taking with, you know, what everybody knows about human courts and the Sanhedrin. He says, if you call someone fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of Gehenna. So What on earth is Gehenna? Well, to answer that, we need to look at a map. Here's a schematic of Jerusalem. It's not great quality, and I apologize for the blurriness. But here's the temple. And just south of the city walls is the valley where everyone throws their trash. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. You can see that written there on the map. In Greek, the name of the valley is Gehenna. It stinks, and there are trash fires burning all the time. Everyone Jesus is talking to knows where Gehenna is and what Gehenna is. It's the trash dump. So when Jesus says, if you go around angry at people and calling them names, you will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna, He's saying you'll be in danger of being utterly useless to everyone, good for nothing except the common trash heap. And that should be ringing bells for you. Jesus just finished saying that we are intended to be like salt. And if we lose our saltiness, we are good for nothing but being thrown out. 
In neither place is Jesus talking about heaven and hell. When he talks about Gehenna, he's talking about the difference between useful or not. When he talks about throwing out the salt, he's talking about a housewife throwing useless salt out on the ground because it's no good anymore in her cooking. He's giving an illustration of what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world or not. Of course, it means we don't murder people, but it's much more than that. It means we are not angry, vicious, hurtful people who lash out at others. Because if that's who we are, then we are worthless as far as being good news to anyone. We are as useless and burdensome as a piece of trash. So if your Bible has translated the word Gehenna as hell here, you will have missed the whole point of Jesus' illustration. Translating that word as hell is, in my very strong opinion, a complete misrepresentation of what Jesus is saying. Using hell here is, in my opinion, due to centuries of theological agendas and power plays. Intentionally or not, that type of translation is used to engulf people in guilt and mortal fear, the very opposite of the good news Jesus is bringing. Jesus continues saying, if you're on your way to worship God and you know you've done something to wrong someone, stop. Put down your your sacrifice and go make things right with the other person. Then come back and make your sacrifice in the temple. In fact, if someone is suing you, try to settle your dispute with them directly, one-on-one. It's much better than letting it go all the way to court where you could be thrown into prison and made to pay every penny. So all that makes perfect human sense. This is discipleship 101 as taught by Jesus. We are not to be angry, vicious, proud, belligerent, nasty people. That is not how to bring light to a people living in the land of death. So clearly, anger and everything that goes with it is a big obstruction to our ability to be part of Jesus' mission. Next, Jesus tackles another big problem, lust. Jesus says, you know you're not to commit adultery, but adultery is not just a physical act. Adultery begins in the heart. It is happening when you look at someone with lust in your heart. Adultery is already there, even if you are only looking and imagining. This is so huge for us today. In Jesus' day, there was no internet. There were no movies. In his cultural context, he is only addressing lusting after an actual person in your life. Our problem today is so much bigger. Jesus says, do whatever it takes to remove that temptation from your life. Jesus is saying that lust is like a cancer in the soul. Left unopposed, it will grow and grow until it consumes you and you will be good for nothing but that trash heap again. In terms of the mission, you won't be good for Jesus' mission. You will still be a, a person with intrinsic value as a person. It's just you won't be, you know, very helpful in the in bringing light and good to goodness to the world. We know this today from experience. People who fight sexual addiction and addiction to pornography know that it is like any other addiction. We need help to keep it from taking over our life and destroying all our relationships. Jesus says, if it is your eye looking at someone with lust, get rid of your eye. If it is your hand that is getting you in trouble, get rid of your hand. 
Now, even though Jesus is dead serious about this issue, his illustration is, of course, hyperbole and not intended to be taken literally. He's not telling people, you know, to hack off body parts, but his point is well taken. He's creating a a, a visual image here. We need to do whatever it takes to remove the temptation from our life. Jesus says, it is better to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna, that trash heap. In modern terms, we might say it's better to turn off your internet service entirely than to let those tempting links take over your life and destroy your relationships, your job, and even your identity. Jesus is explaining that anger and lust can completely absorb you and take over your life and all your relationships and keep you from being light in a world of darkness and death. We need to do whatever it takes, get the help we need to deal with our anger and our lust. Jesus then continues this thread about adultery and lust by talking about divorce. It's tremendously important that we recognize the context here. Jesus is not talking about divorce in a vacuum. He's just said that the root problem he's talking about is lust. And he says, lust in your heart is in fact adultery. And that then leads to divorce that is unjust and wrong, as we'll see in a minute. It's also important to remember that Jesus is talking to the men. The law of Moses allows a man to simply give his wife a certificate in order to divorce her for any reason whatsoever. But this is a huge injustice to a woman in this culture. There are very few options for Jewish women to support themselves, especially if they're too old for childbearing. Jesus is speaking directly to a serious abuse of power being actively perpetrated by the patriarchy of his time. Abuse of male power with its roots in lust and adultery. So keep this context, this container in mind as we dig into what Jesus says about divorce. Here's the exact quote from this passage in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5.32 from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There are three things to notice here. One is that Jesus is saying no one should be issuing certificates of divorce unless the wife has been unchaste. Now, (laughs) this English word unchaste doesn't quite capture the actual Greek word porneia. Yeah, as in porn. The Greek word itself here means prostitution and rampant promiscuity of a married woman. That's not exactly what I think of when I read the word unchastity. I think this translation is very weak. And porneia is a completely different word than the Greek word for being unfaithful, mokaya, which we'll see used in a minute. So they could have used unfaithful here. No, they didn't use unfaithful. They used a stronger word. They used porneia here. Um, The second part to notice is that divorcing your wife causes her to commit adultery. The words in Greek are makes her unfaithful. That last word is not the porneia word, but the other Greek word I just mentioned that means being unfaithful in marriage. Being unfaithful is translated to English here as the word adultery. But look, the original Greek is in the passive voice. It means that the adultery is done to her. The husband makes her the victim of adultery. 
that's completely different, right? The new international version captures this important nuance. So this is the same verse, just a different translation. The NIV translation says, makes her the victim of adultery. You have to be so aware of the leeway translators have with these ancient texts. If a passage doesn't ring true within your soul, check other translations. This is a new tool to add to your backpack. And it makes sense that for a man entangled in lust and adultery to give his wife a certificate of divorce would definitely make his wife a victim of his adultery. Overall, the NIV seems to be getting closer to the sense of the Greek. So let's use that version for now. The third thing I want to point out is this bit about anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, that's pretty weird. I mean, in context, she's divorced through no fault of her own. In this culture, she's pretty much got to remarry to survive. Well, fortunately, Mark writes an expanded version of this teaching in his book, which is copied and expanded further by Matthew later in his own book. So let's take a look at the expanded versions. Mark's story is in chapter 10. He says the Pharisees asked Jesus this question. Is it lawful for a husband to divorce a wife? Now, that seems a reasonable question unless you read the rest of the text. Mark clues us in that the reason the Pharisees ask this question is to test Jesus, and that's huge. You see, the law of Moses is clear that it's okay for a husband to divorce a wife for any reason whatsoever, and by their way, by the way, in our modern society, it would be equally acceptable for a wife to divorce her husband. You know, this is just part of the law. But the Pharisees, Jesus, and all the people listening know the context. They know that a terrible injustice is being perpetrated on women by men who are abusing this loophole in the law. If this wasn't a trick question, Jesus would just say, right, that's what the law says. But the Pharisees know that Jesus can't say that because he'd be siding with injustice. The men entangled in lust and adultery are divorcing their wives for frivolous reasons, and the women have no recourse. That's why this is a trick question. And Jesus quotes several lines from Genesis about God creating male and female and the two becoming one flesh. And he then reiterates that last part, saying again, they are no longer two. They are one flesh. Then he adds, therefore, what God has joined together, no one should separate. That verb separate is in the imperative. Jesus is speaking strongly here. And he puts it in context by acknowledging that, yes, Moses let you divorce, but that was because of your hard, dry, and obstinate hearts. The Greek word he uses is sclerocardia, literally sclerosis of the heart. And that hard-heartedness has certainly persisted from Moses' day to Jesus' day. Here in Matthew's expanded version of the story, Jesus adds that part about being able to divorce a wife due to sexual immorality. We already saw in the shorter version in the Sermon uh, on the Mount, we looked at the wording here, and it is the exact same Greek word in both places, the word porneia. The word is translated differently even within these two verses in Matthew that are, you know, one's from Matthew 5, one's from Matthew 19. It's translated different, differently within the NIV version, calling porneia sexual immorality in one place and marital unfaithfulness in another. Whereas the underlying mean, meaning of the Greek word is prostitution and rampant promiscuity. That, that would be a reason for divorce by any reasonable standard. But that egregious sexual harm towards the marriage is not quite coming across in, you know, these English translations. 
In this expanded version of the story in chapter 19, Matthew leaves out the part about the wife being a victim of her husband's adultery. And instead of the man committing adultery by marrying a divorced woman, he says the adultery occurs when the man divorces his wife and then marries anybody. Mark has even another variation on this exact same teaching, and his version of the story also says the adultery happens when the man marries any other woman. In Mark's version, Jesus adds that if the wife divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Wait a minute. That's strange because, first of all, in the time of Jesus, although Greek and Roman women could initiate a divorce, Jesus is speaking to Jews here. And a Jewish woman could not divorce her husband unless she could convince a male relative to initiate the suit on her behalf. She had no standing in court. So that would be really rare. So wives divorcing their husbands cannot possibly be a widespread problem nor causing egregious injustice in the Jewish society as a whole. This little addition is just not consistent with any of the other passages, nor with the context and culture um, surrounding Jesus' remarks. So I personally think Mark's version of this teaching is the least likely to be accurate here. It's confusing, right? We have three different versions of the same teaching, and you can harmonize these or not as you wish. I've given you the tools. I've given you the context, the culture, the Greek, the comparisons. And now I'll tell you what I personally think. First, I take a hard pass on Mark's version for the reasons I just explained. And that leaves the two passages in Matthew. For me, in the context of Jesus' teaching on lust and adultery that set this all up, and in light of the Pharisees, you know, using a trick question that references a, a, a practice in their society that was unjust to the wife, I personally think the best reading would be a blend of Matthew 5 and 19 that would say, I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for prostitution and rampant promiscuity, and marries another woman, commits adultery. This rendering would make complete sense in view of the problem of unjust divorce that is tearing the fabric of Jewish society in Jesus' time. Jesus is saying you cannot divorce your wife because you are lusting after another woman. The fact that you give your wife a certificate of divorce and are no longer legally married, at least on paper, does not erase the fact that your motivation was lust and therefore your actions are just as adulterous as if you had remained married and had an affair. It's so important to understand this context. Jesus is talking about what is going on in the heart. That is the whole premise of this part of the Sermon on the Mount. So don't take this verse out of context and apply it in situations where an injustice is not occurring. Jesus is speaking to a particular problem at a particular time, and he's focusing on the underlying injustice being perpetrated. That needs to be our guiding star, too. Our takeaway is, is there an injustice happening? That's when divorce is wrong. Later, back at the house, the disciples ask Jesus about this and say, if you really mean that, then it would be better not to marry at all. They probably said something about it being better just to be eunuchs because Jesus answers saying, well, not everyone can hold space for this word, only those it is given to. Some people are born eunuchs, some people are made into eunuchs by other men, others can make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who can hold space for this word hold it. The disciples seem to think it's hopeless to expect men not to have affairs. I think I've heard that rationale even in modern times, right? And Jesus seems to recognize that not everyone is able to stay faithful. 
And that's why Moses gave them divorce in the first place. But it seems to me that Jesus is saying, yeah, men certainly could choose to be eunuchs, but choosing to never marry isn't actually going to solve the underlying problem of lust. Some people are celibate by choice and some are born that way. But whether you are married or not, you are still going to have to deal with your issues of lust. Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? No wiggle room here. We need to deal with our junk, our junk, not everybody else's, ours, our anger and lust especially. This is critical and we'll never be able to be the salt of the earth or the light of the world otherwise. Anger and lust do not bring good news to the world. And so in today's breakout session, your group can choose to think about the heart qualities that lead to being useful in Jesus' mission or lead to being useless and good only for the trash heap in terms of the mission, advancing the mission. Or you can skip to the bottom of the page and talk about divorce instead. It is completely your, your choice, as always, to talk within your group about what interests you. Hey there. So what did y'all end up talking about? Stuff. Divorce. Divorce. Okay. Talk to me about that. Um, Shirley, did you want to share? Um, my ex now um, had been married before. And he, um, when we got married, our pastor, I was in an independent, fundamental, King James only, thank you very much. Right. Yeah. So we were in one of those churches and our pastor allowed us to get married in the church, came to the wedding, but would not perform the ceremony because he was divorced. And so we had to find, and it took a while to find a Baptist preacher who would marry us. And when we did find one, we had to go to three weeks of counseling with him before he would marry us. And it had to be the stipulation that his ex had committed adultery or had an affair. And that was the only way that I was allowed to marry him. It was strange. Especially when the pastor approved of our marriage and came to the wedding and everything else, but would not perform the ceremony. I just thought that was interesting. Right. Time to leave that church. <laughs> what else did y'all um, talk about? What kind? What kind of bubbled up? But these were these are tough topics. Anger and lust are kind of big deals. Or I didn't say anything, but I guess I have a lot of anger left towards my uh, first wife. She went back to court and has extorted $400 a month for the rest of her life as alimony. And that just angers me and I have a hard time forgiving her. I, probably all of us have a story or more than one of anger that we hold that we cannot seem to get past that boulder. What, what a how do we get how do we get past that? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Um, anger over those those particular occasions? What is what do you think is in view here when Jesus is talking about dealing with our anger? Hey, I offer something, Gail. Um, I used to work on that a lot because I and still wrestle with anger in my own life. But I think where I've come to a piece about that is that I just, this is where faith comes in. I have to trust that it's in God's time and it's in a moment of grace that that happens. And I think I told you at one point, I was counseling a, a, a woman and she was not of my tradition, and but we just really respected each other. And we we're talking about grace. She kept using the word. And I said, you know, I really don't have a good definition for that word. I That's a word that's been in my vocabulary since the time I was a child. But 
I need to understand it better. And she said, oh, Mary, girl, 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 girl. She said, that is so easy. And I said, then tell me, because I need help. She said, it's unearned benefit. And I said, oh, okay. And I had to sit with it a minute. You know, I'm a word person. And I went, unearned benefit. And I thought, oh, yes. When I look back on moments of grace, it was nothing I particularly did. It was in that, you know, in my parlance, it was when God was present, when the Christ was present, when I didn't always have control over it, you know. And um, I'll give a concrete example. When I was 18, this is not coming from hood. Please don't hear it this way. It's just part of the story. I was raped and beaten as a young woman at 18. And um, it was horrible. And I decided to go through with the help of an assistant district attorney that said, you know, we have a jacket on this guy in our office, but nobody will step up and prosecute. Nobody will come to court and, you know, and can you do that? And so I did. I said, I will walk with you if you help me with this. And um um, and I went to my pastor, my mother drove me immediately to my parish priest, and his way to help me was to say, Mary, and I, he knew me, he knew me very well, and he said, Mary Patricia Bridget, get down on your knees and beg for forgiveness, and there was a disconnect with my faith at that moment, because I thought, I, it's kind of like this divorce discussion today, it was like, why am I asking for forgiveness? I did not perpetrate anything. Anyway, so I struggled with my faith in that moment and and lost some confidence in my pastor, who I really had a lot of trust in. But it was part of my journey. I'm not going to make that victimhood. I'm not going to make it bad. It, it brought me to where I am today. And you see the grace in it. But Later on, at one point, I had my own business, and I had received a contract from the Department of Corrections in New Mexico to go in and work with young incarcerated males. And it was a level four prison, so they were murderers and rapists, and they were serious offenders as juveniles. And I went in there to teach, and um, there was a young man in my group, and um he had been um, accused and prosecuted for rape as a juvenile. And when he turned 18, he would move to the federal prison in Santa Fe. And so he asked to talk to me one day alone, which was kind of a hard thing to make happen because it was maximum security and I was a woman, you know, but I was able to at least be in a room with him. The door was open. There were people outside. I was not afraid. I was never afraid there. That was the grace of being there. I was never afraid. And I actually fell in love with all these young men because I had a child. I had one son. And I thought, you know, this could be my child. It's not, but it could be my child. And somebody is a mother to this young man. So we sat and talked. And this man, young man was six foot four, very tall, strong personality. And he wept in my arms for the hurt he had caused. And he wept for the abuse he had suffered as a child. And in that moment, it was a moment of grace. It was not my control. There was another presence, we call it the Holy Spirit, whatever you name it is okay with me. But in that moment, all of a sudden that anger was gone. It took years. <laughs> it did not, you know, we, we look at the examples of the Amish when they their children were, and they immediately jumped to forgiveness and I wish I could say that was my journey. It was not. It took years of me having this anger that was not healing for me at all. It, it disquieted me. 
And yet in a moment of grace, and it took this young, young man who was a rapist. He did not know my story, nor did he need to. That was not part of the deal. But when I saw this young man just crumpled, I became the mother. You know, I hope at some point in his life, he had a mother that wrapped arms around him and forgave him. And I, you know, but there's a book I love and I recommend it all the time, The Wounded Healer by Henry Nowen. And as we reach out to heal, I truly believe we are healed. So, Brian, thank you for your honesty about the anger that you hold. I think we're human, and I this topic today is so relevant. Boy, when I look at the situation at the border and the politics, and it brings up anger. It's part of, I won't digress into lust because that never happens with me (laughs) (laughs) but the anger one you know the anger one just was so palpable for me but again it's those grace-filled moments that I couldn't make happen working on my anger year after year after year saying I need to forgive I need oh my god the wasted energy (laughs) if I'd known that just in this moment of me being in this prison I never would have guessed that you know and for him to feel vulnerable to talk to me to bear his soul we all need that person we can confess too, that creates that safe space and I think in that moment grace happens don't you I I'm sure we have a story like that you know we heard a couple in our breakout group Marlene you celebrating with your divorce choir director being remarried that was a moment of grace yeah. I'm sorry I'm going on too long I Mary I needed to hear what you had to say yeah. today I, I don't know if y'all doesn't. Oh, sorry. My my anger has been up here. Um, last night, my daughter was driving home from work, and somebody, a bullet went through her windshield and through the back of her car. Oh my gosh! Last night, I was numb. Mm-hmm. She's fine physically, mentally. We're not. None of us are really fine today. But this morning I woke up and I was so angry. I just, and then you just said that, you know, it's somebody else's kid that was stupid and did that. Was he shooting at my daughter? I don't think so because my daughter, you know, she is Chinese, but I don't think you could tell that at 10 o'clock at night in the dark, you know? So it was, he was shooting at somebody and her car just happened to be in the way. Um, but. They do have a homicide detective on her case because I guess it is technically attempted murder, which just ramped up my emotions just a little little bit higher. (laughs) But I needed to center myself back in what you were saying. And that helped a lot. Thank you. Welcome. I think... Anger doesn't hurt the person you're angry with. It hurts you. The anger, being angry at somebody is allowing them to live rent-free in your head. And you are, the anger turns to bitterness and hatred. And that's not a good place for you to be. That poisons you. So I think harboring anger doesn't do anybody any good. Um, There are things that I could be angry for with people that um, have happened in my past. And I've had people say to me, why aren't you angry about that? Why are, you know, how, how do you have this peace about it? And I'm like, it's God, because as a human being, I would hate that person, but God helps me not to hold that bitterness in my heart. And I'm not the kind of person who, who hangs on to resentments and stuff like that. 
And it's hard for me to understand people who are that way. But um, I know that it's, you know, part of human nature to be that way. And like, um, who's, um, my screen is messing up or her screen is messing up and I forgot. It's Mary, right? Yeah. Mary. Um, like Mary said, it's grace. It's grace. Do you want me to put myself on stop video? Cause it's my, it's my screen that's acting. No, we're up. good. We're good. Okay. I'm sorry. I interrupted, but I meant no, to you're ask. Fine. I, I, I just wanted to interject that. I think a lot of times our anger that we have so much difficulty letting go of in a situation where we have been, um, you know, used, damaged, hurt, is out of a sense of um, a lack of justice mm -hmm. or the wrongdoing, that we carry around this sense that we want justice. Mm. And, and if that justice doesn't happen, we are, have not only been harmed, but we've been cheated of seeing a just resolution to that harm. And I think um, that's why, you know, when it talks in the Bible about righteousness, which like you said, Gail, meant justice. Why justice is so important because it's not just to punish the person that did the wrong. It's to bring a sense of, of peace to the harmed party so that we can move out of the anger mm -hmm. and we can then heal and go on with our life. But if that justice has never been, has never happened or does not feel to us like there has been justice, then we don't have any place to put the hurt and the hurt becomes anger. And then it just sits with us and it smolders in us until something happens that helps us to release that. I interpret, I interpret your word justice as sort of equivalent to uh, the word fairness. And it makes me angry when things happen that are just not fair. And yet life is not fair. And, you know, how, how do you, how does one experience that unfairness without having anger bubble up. You know, I would say this, and Woody, I so appreciate what you just said, and Marlene, at my age, there's still a piece that's not resolved because after all that happened, I left my faith for a while because I had a transactional God. God, I was a child. I was 18. I had not deepened my walk. I had not deepened my journey. And so I said, I'm a good Catholic girl. I've done everything right and without being too um, vulnerable. But, you know, in our tradition, you saved yourself for marriage. That was a gift you brought into your marriage. And, and God was present. There were three of you there. And that you, and as a Catholic girl, that's what I believed in. I, I thought that's beautiful. That's, it, it made so much sense to me at 18. And I thought, you know, I did all the right things. I told Joe to go away and I thought Joe was pretty hot, you know. <laughs> Why did this happen? You know, and a, a nun helped me with that. She said, you had a transactional God at that point in your development, Mary. You do this, he does this. You do this. It, it was even a he in those days, you know? I mean, that's all changed. But the piece that I continued to work on, and Woody, I know you could speak to this. What captured my heart was restorative justice. And I started really trying to put my faith back together with that sense of justice and fairness for all involved and justice for all. That was also for the person that perpetrated. And my question to me at this age, and I probably will never have an answer until I'm gone, is 
Would I do it differently now that I understand restorative justice? Would I have the same need to go into court and to punish him? Now, I would tell you the day he was sentenced, I did not have a feeling of joy. I I didn't know how to name it. I didn't know. I, I was too young. I didn't have the words. But I know I did not feel good about him being taken out and knowing he was going, you know, and I think that was God working in my life as well. I had to somehow find a way to put that justice, fairness, and the anger and and was turning away from my faith at that time and putting my faith back together. There are no accidents. (laughs) I believe that, you know, I, we like to say we have free will, but I also deeply believe in God's will. And I I think when I can't manage it as a human being, there's someone there holding me up. And if there isn't, I'm in deep trouble. Because <laughs> left to my own devices, I'm a train wreck. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Other thoughts? You know, back to what Shirley was talking about regarding anger. <clears throat> One of my favorite theologian of mine named Frederick Beekner. Oh. Wrote, and and, and then I'm going to paraphrase because it's been a long time. <laughs> but he said basically something like, we love to chew on our anger, but we don't realize that what we're chewing on is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's wonderful. Oh. Another good one to read if you all need new books. <laughs> He's wonderful. I was, I was raised, my, mom, my grandmother taught my mom and my mom kind of taught us that, you know, we are going to experience anger and injustice, hurtful things in our lifetime. And it's easy for our thoughts to kind of take over and ruminate on all of those things that have happened. And so we've kind of been taught when you find yourself ruminating on the hurt or the injustice that has happened, the trauma that has happened. Um, my grandma swore by these three words and she said, you just, instead of allowing those thoughts to kind of take you on a movie trailer of what has happened or could happen. You just stop and, and like physically say, I love bless and forgive that person. And, and she said that it's a way to help number one, stop the thoughts from (laughs) derailing you and spiraling you. And two is just an act of um, your, your words are stronger than your thoughts. So the power of the spoken word and two, and unconsciously just, repeating that you're almost allowing that that anger and that injustice to for that moment just to leave your body instead of continuing to settle in which we all know I mean all of the anger and injustice and trauma we hold physically and it physically does us harm so I think it's a one it's a way to just attempt to kind of stop that the thought process and the spiraling of of making that hurt worse in ourselves so I, I find myself using that even still with our family. So anytime I find those thoughts is I love, bless, and forgive. Not because they need me to forgive them, but just as a way of, of preventing the side effects of what the physical, the hurt can do to us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You know, it's not bad to have anger. God has anger about some things. We are allowed to be angry. Jesus had anger at the temple, at the money changers. Um, it's normal. It's perf- it's, there, there's nothing wrong with having anger. It's when you allow that anger to boil, <laughs> to allow it to, to continue to grow and lead to bitterness and lead to hatred, that that's when the anger becomes a problem. It's not a sin to have anger. It's a sin to ruminate on it. It's a sin to hold it in your heart and keep it forever and ever and ever. Amen. One of the things, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say that's well well said. I did it for years. (laughs) 
one of the things that um, my counselor actually helped me understand is that very often it's other emotions that are happening that are being disguised as anger. Mm-hmm. And that very often anger needs to be looked behind um, because anger is actually just hurt coming out sideways or fatigue coming out sideways. Think of your toddlers, right? Anger can be lots and lots of other, it's fear coming out sideways. Um, so don't, uh, my, my understanding, how I'm, or how I cope with anger. And, and I come from a, a family of origin where anger was rampant in, um, an authoritarian and, and in both, in the way both parents dealt with us and spoke to each other. And it was just anger is the soup I was boiled in and it's still, Anger and judgment still come out and cause me problems because I'll write an email and it'll, you know, have a phrase in there that everybody else in the world can see as a problem. And I didn't see it was a problem. You know, that was just normal reaction for me, you know? So I think that, um, like Mary says, like several of you have said, this is a, Brian, that this is a, a like a lifelong struggle because we're dealing with a kind of an octopus here, <laughs> that a shape shifting sort of thing. And um, uh, I, I, I loved, I think you said, Mary, that after that moment of grace, you looked back and thought about all those years of work on anger and what basically a waste it was because what was really needed was that moment of grace. And I want to couple that with what Erica just said um, about simply when the anger feeling comes up and you know that there's just like really no control over it. And what, what Shirley said, you get, you you're allowed to feel what you feel, you know, but what, what, what Erica was suggesting is just stopping in the moment, naming it. Right. And then doing whatever your intervention is. She has um, words that she uses. Other people will have a five minute distraction that they use, you know, whatever, whatever it is to make, you're making a choice in that moment, not to let that door open. Okay. And let, and Mm -hmm. and let the anger enter it. And sometimes you're making that choice 50,000 times a minute, right? Renee, (laughs) there are seasons (laughs) in your life where you're having to make that choice. It, It seems like in every second of every day, but that goes, it's like grief, you know, it, it, there is an immediacy, when the hurt is great, especially when anger is covering a hurt or a fear, um, it, where it is very intense, you feel like you're never going to get out of this and you're just going to have to kill somebody in order to, you know, get rid of all this emotion that's inside of you, you know, and that tails off over time. But I also, so just be consistent, be faithful is all I'm saying. And the other thing is that Mary's description of what happened, the thing that changed this for her was that instant where Christ held her and the uh, that young man together. And in the that instant, all things were set right on both sides. Justice is not about punishment, which is why you felt empty, right, at the sentencing. Justice is when it's set right, when the tears are wiped away by love on both sides. So I want to distinguish um, quickly between being angry over an incident or a pattern of incidents or being angry at a person because they consistently do these things is different, I think, 
than being an angry person who spews anger into the world. Does that make sense? And I think what Jesus is getting to is not to dump a load of guilt on us for feeling anger over things that happen to us. What Jesus is getting to is don't be that angry person in need of, who has need of control and need of power and need of manipulation and need to, but then with the need to punish others. Marlene, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I was just, um, I, um, I had this sort of connection in my head um, of both the conversations that we were having today about lust and anger um, that so often I think we have tended to look at it on a much more surface level, like you're saying, being angry about something um, or even feeling um, a sexual attraction to someone who was not our spouse. It's like we're so often the conversation is those feelings are wrong. But what Jesus is talking about is a much deeper thing is, is what happens when you have that feeling and you nurse it and you nurture it and you feed it and you let it take over your life. And then it becomes a destructive force rather than a natural sort of just physical or emotional response to a situation or a person. And so when Jesus is talking about how we need to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and to deal with our lust and our anger, it's not this surface stuff. It's the soul eating stuff that we allow to change us and to, to become us. And that is beautiful. Um, Really, everything y'all have said is beautiful. This is real stuff we all wrestle with all the time. (laughs) And, And along that lines, I want to point out that Jesus is not in here saying um, that you can't have boundaries. He's actually saying the opposite. All right. Um, You can have boundaries to protect yourself from from hurt and and angry people and bullets through the glass. You can have boundaries. And he's also saying you must have boundaries that keep the hooks of lust from dragging you over the cliff. The hooks of lust or anger, either one. You know, he is actually saying in that part about, you know, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. He's saying, set boundaries. (laughs) And that applies to both of these things. Those are probably the two strongest emotions humans have. Yes. Because those feed off of other emotions. Tons of things to think about here. We're to the end of our time. I have to, I have some things that I have to do this afternoon. So the video won't come out till tomorrow for sure. Um, but I appreciate your presence and your vulnerability, all your thoughts and your honesty today. And um, we can continue the discussion in the uh, discussion group online. So mm-hmm. Keep thinking, and we'll see you next week, and we'll do the next segment. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.